Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Amen. Hey, you can have a seat right where you're at. You might need to scoot in a little bit and open up some aisle seats for people there. Our first through fifth graders, you guys are headed downstairs. Looks like you're going down there with Cody and your small group time is Siel and Troy. Man, all-star group. You guys are going to have a great time. So, so look at this. Like, like, yeah, a lot of kids. That's great. Now we have some seats. How about that? All right. Um, so one of the things that that I want to talk about with you guys today as we kind of continue this, uh, this turn the page series is this idea of status symbols. Now, I don't know about you, but I have had the just crazy pleasure of being able to drive a brand new car, like get a brand new car, not new to me, but a brand new car. I remember the day I got it, and uh, this was years ago, and I was driving, it was kind of a dreary day, and I'm driving it off the lot, and I remember the wipers went for the first time. And they were just perfect. Like the water, just, it was like it wasn't even there. And I literally said, whoa, at the side of that. I, I remember we pulled up the gas station because you don't get any gas at the, at the dealer. You know, you just get a little bit in there. And I pulled in the gas station to get to fill up. And, and apparently the doors opened a lot easier than my old beater truck that I had before that, very similar to the current beater truck that I have. But the doors opened rather easelessly, just, just boom, right there. And I slam it into one of the pylons by the gas station, leaving a nice little dent in that. It was a great feeling, that brand new vehicle. But that's the thing about status symbols. Like You can have something... And you feel so great about it. You feel so great about, I have this. This is, this is what I've been working for. I, 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 I deserve this. Like, why am I in such a better mood just because I have this? And then, bang, you feel terrible. I remember the, 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 this time where it was really clear to me. Like, sometimes, I don't know about you, but status symbols for me have to do with technology. If I have the newest, latest, greatest, whatever, I feel kind of nice, right? Like, this, this is cool. And I was, I was, uh, it was a Sunday morning, and, and my phone was, was low on power. And, uh, and I made a comment to one of, our, one of our guys that was volunteering that morning. I said, man, I just, I just pray to you go find a, a charger, a cable. And he handed me, me his cable. I was like, oh, thanks. But then it didn't fit because he had the newer generation. I had the old one. And you just feel like, oh, I'm just, I have not arrived. But, but this is what, kind of what we do, right? We, we assign things into different categories, we, we place things in different categories based on, on the, maybe the haves and have-nots. Uh, maybe those who have arrived, the, the ins versus the outs, and the, and the most versus the least. But here's the thing about our status symbols. I think they tell us two big lies. Our status symbols tell us two big lies. First, they tell a lie about who we are. Like, we shouldn't feel like we are better just because we have something nicer, right? But we do. And the other thing the status symbols do is they tell us a lie about what we're going to get from those things. Like, like, you remember the first time you unboxed something you were really excited about, whether it's a new phone or a new computer or a brand new TV, and you're like, this is it. And then in a month, when the thing doesn't work the way you want it to, you want to throw a rock at it, right? Like, like there's a way in which we kind of get caught up and we do this over and over and over and over again. We, get so, we, are, we, have, a, we have arrived, we have made it because we have the latest and greatest. You know, we know what it feels like to be one of the have-nots, to be one of those on the outside. We know what it feels like to, to seem like we're in the out crowd. Uh, maybe we, we feel like we're the have-nots because we look around and we just notice everything that we're lacking. You know, you pull into the parking lot at work and, oh, that car's newer and 
that car's nicer. Or you drop your kids off at school and like, oh, that kid isn't screaming at his parents. They must be a better parent than me. Or, or maybe you're doing things around the house and, and, and that neighbor who has already cut his grass three times and you will never be able to compete with his yard. Uh, those, those moments where you feel like, I am just on the outside and look what I don't have. Maybe you feel like you're the outs because there's kind of a circle of people that you can't break into. That you want to, maybe it's at work, maybe it's a friend group, and it's like all of a sudden we're in high school again and there's a cool table and you're not invited. Maybe you feel like you're the least because you think about things in terms of a, a ladder. And when it comes to where you're at on that ladder, you're on one of the bottom rungs. See, the reality is that most of us have these feelings, or we at least have these feelings that we're afraid that we're going to become one of the least. And it, and it drives us to hold on to status. And so we, we hold on to these status symbols. Now, of course, this isn't something that's just unique to modern society throughout culture, all societies. There have been people who have said, okay, you're down here and we're up here. And there's kind of these lines, these, these indicators of where you stand. And so if we go back to the New Testament times, we go back to, to first century Judea, we see a group just like this. There's one particular group of, of people, it's a very small group, and because of their occupation, because of, of what they do, this group was considered the lowest class. They were unskilled labor. They were untrustworthy. In fact, their accounts, like if they were involved in some sort of criminal action, if they were somehow involved in some sort of lawsuit, their testimony would be thrown out. Like their word meant nothing. And so if you occupy this role as an adult, if this is your, your pinnacle job achievement, it means you don't have any other options. It means that this is as high or as far as you're going to go. You're seen as a total and complete failure. So who is this group? What is this group? What are, the, what are these people? These are the shepherds. These are people that their job, these, you know, by and large or primarily or almost always men, have to take care of animals. And their lives are seen as less valuable than the animals they take care of. So what would a, a typical day look like for someone who's a shepherd? If we look over at Luke chapter 2, we see the account of Jesus being born. We see the, the Christmas story, right? In Luke chapter 2, this historian named Luke tells this story and about how one group in particular gets to hear the news. And he describes what they're doing. He says this in verse 8. He says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping over watch, keeping over watch, keeping watch over their flocks at night. So shepherds have to live with their animals 24-7. You've heard the expression, counting sheep. Imagine that's literally what you had to do every night. Like, you're out there in the open. Like, this is your job. Like, your job is to make sure these dumb animals don't wander off. To make sure these dumb animals are taken care of. Like, this is the only thing you can be trusted with. It's a 24-7 job. You know, it's, it, these, these guys have a hopeless position. There's no way for them to move forward. Because what are they going to do with the next job interview? And they say, oh, I see you were a shepherd. Uh, we're going to look in a different direction. We'll call you. In, verse chap in, in chapter 2, verse 9, Luke continues, says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you great news that will cause great joy for all the people. And what's that news? They announce that Jesus has been born. They tell them where to go and what to look for. And these shepherds get to hear this incredible message. Now, of course, when, if you have a, 
angelic presence or some voice of, of heaven coming and talking to you, you're going to be freaked out. That's an understandable thing for them to do. This is what, they, what you would expect. But here, the lowest of the low, they are given this amazing insight into this news. They are given this incredible moment where Jesus, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, has been born into the world. This is crazy that it would be the shepherds, not kings, not the powerful, not the rich, that would get this news. They're so overwhelmed by what just happened, they, they do something that could probably get them fired. They walk away from their post. They leave the animals to go find out what's going on. They leave the sheep. But why? Why do the lowest of the low, why do the lowest low get to see the baby Jesus? I think it's because God cares about the least. See, there are no favorites in God's eyes. But because he equally loves the lowest, the least, the poorest, the forgotten, the downtrodden, the most. It feels, it feels like it doesn't align with our own values, our own cultural norms. Their lowly status had told them the lie that they were worthless. Also, don't miss that, that Jesus will often refer to himself as the great shepherd. Now, he's not a shepherd by trade. He's a carpenter. He's a builder. He's a laborer. He is not somebody who does, but he takes on this mantle and he calls himself the great shepherd. And that's a kind of an odd title. This is kind of an oxymoron. It's like saying jumbo shrimp or well-rested new parent, right? Like this just doesn't fit. It's not like shepherds got together and they, they elected someone and said, this is going to be our great leader. This is the great shepherd. They don't have a, an Oscars night where they have like best supporting shearer or achievement in grazing. Like this is something crazy to people. This doesn't make sense where they would have someone called a great shepherd. Being called a great shepherd is like at the end of preschool, at the last day of school, and they pass out awards, and they give you the award for least glue eaten, right? Like this just doesn't make sense. This doesn't align this idea of great shepherd. But of course, on first glance, not a lot makes sense with Jesus. Today is Palm Sunday. This kicks off Holy Week. It culminates in Easter where we celebrate the resurrection. And if you grew up in a church like I did, Palm Sunday was like the day the kids got to play in big church. See, we would have people that would dress up and they, there would be Jesus and there would be people kind of walking down the center aisle and then, and then there would be people with these big palm fronds, right? These big palm fronds, we wave them. As a kid, I didn't really know what was going on. All I know is I got to wave a palm frond and like hit my little brother as I'm doing it, right? But Palm Sunday is this incredible thing. It's, it's, it's referred to in the Bible also as the triumphal entry. In, in this moment, what we have about four days, Sunday to Thursday night, in that span, we go from Jesus being welcomed as a rock star, as a conquering hero. Jesus being, being ushered in in this kind of parade. And, and then Thursday night, he's arrested. And overnight into Friday, he's, he's, there's a sham trial and he's He's tortured, and he's beaten, and he's humiliated, and then by Friday afternoon, he's dead on a cross and executed. And so how do we go from Sunday to Thursday? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, with what people are expecting. John chapter 12 records what happens in the, on Palm Sunday, verse 12 and 13. says this, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna. That's a word we throw around sometimes. We sing it in some of our songs, Hosanna. Literally, it means save. 
And it's kind of a, a praise, it's kind of an accolade, it's kind of a way of saying, we need your help, we are calling on you to save us. And so when the people shout Hosanna, they are saying, Jesus, we need your help and we believe that you can save us. We believe that you can help us. They go on to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. And they take down the palm branches, they throw down their cloaks, so they don't want Jesus to even walk on the dirt. And palm branches were kind of another way of signifying victory and kind of this symbolic meaning. But Jesus isn't walking or riding in on this war horse as a conquering hero, this general that's going to kind of upstage things and be placed in power. He's on a donkey, the most unassuming of animals. And he comes in, and people are, are so excited, and they're expecting these great things. They're expecting that, well, now Jesus is going to be in control. Now Jesus is going to finally get rid of those that have been oppressing us, those that have been kind of pushing us down under our thumb. Finally, Jesus is going to do what we want him to do. For these people on Palm Sunday, the status symbol was Jesus. This is our guy coming in. And just wait to see what we're going to get out of it. That Palm Sunday moment where people are so excited about him being there, some of those same people in four days, five days, are going to be shouting that he's guilty and that he should be crucified. See, the status symbol is lying to them about what they were going to get out of Jesus. In the same way, we read the, the birth story that tells us something incredible about Jesus, tells us about who he really is and what his mission is. Now the reality that, this, that his birth was announced as shepherd, shepherds first paints this incredible picture of like this cinematic moment, but it also tells us something about Jesus and what he's up to. Because over and over and over and over again, Jesus is drawing people to him. Not because he tells them everything they want to hear. In fact, he also has very hard and harsh things to say. People are drawn to Jesus not because his way of living or viewing things was just kind of in line with what everyone else thought. In fact, it was very countercultural and went against the grain so often. He, he, people were drawn to Jesus not because, not because he was a great speaker, but because he had incredible things to say. He spoke truth and he showed love in powerful ways. Over and over we see in Jesus' life and the, the stories recorded in the Gospels where he loves the least. He wasn't trying to promote himself or gain power or accolades. He seems to make this habit of breaking down societal barriers and classifications that put up walls. That John, one of Jesus' closest friends, records many of these stories in the gospel that he wrote about Jesus' life. And what we see over and over again is that leading up, leading up to this Palm Sunday moment, leading up to this moment where all the crowds were finally saying, here's our hero, now everything is fixed because he's going to take control. We see over and over again, Jesus not trying to amass power, but speaking to the least. We read in John chapter 4 that Jesus speaks with a Samaritan woman, something that just would not happen. A Jew would not speak with a Samaritan. A man would not speak with a woman alone. And at this conversation at a well in the middle of the day, he speaks with this woman, and he essentially reveals to her he knows everything about her. He knows that she has been married multiple times, that she is not living with her husband, that this woman probably lives in shame. And what does he do? He extends love. In this moment, Jesus loves this woman who others have rejected. The next chapter over in John chapter 5, Jesus encounters a man who has been, been suffering with a disease for 38 years, so much so that he can't walk. 
And the question of the day, the kind of the, the status symbol of such and kind of understanding things and putting things, people on a hierarchy is that he must have done something wrong to deserve this. He must have done something wrong to be paralyzed and unable to walk. And in fact, the, the, the disciples, Jesus' Jesus's disciples asked this question. They said, well, did he do something wrong? Did his parents do something wrong? Is this something getting passed down or, or did he do something here? And Jesus says, well, we're not going to legislate that we're not going to figure this out we're not going to do this because that's the wrong question he asked him to stand up right on the spot and walk jesus loves this man who others had ignored in john chapter 9 something else happens in this moment where where jesus encounters a blind man in the same conversation well who caused this man to be blind what sin in his life jesus sees it differently he restores the man's sight and gives him a new beginning he loves this man who others blamed. John's gospel is full of these incredible stories that demonstrate Jesus' goodness. And I don't know if that's an argument that is, you're going to push back on, right? Jesus is a good guy. Like, I'm really going out on a limb there, aren't I? But, but what I see is all of these things where John is, is writing this is that he is kind of building this case. He is building this case and, and to the point where John starts to starts to change how he views himself. The author is kind of in the story, and he's there, and there's an interesting way that John refers to himself. Because it's ultimately that Jesus' love redefines how John saw himself. Years after Jesus' death, years after the resurrection, John is a leader in the church. John wrote this gospel. He wrote letters that bear his name. He wrote the book of Revelation there at the end of the Bible. John is a pillar. John has accomplished so much. John was said to be kind of in the inner circle with Jesus. He wasn't just one of the 12. He was one of the three there with Jesus. John has credential after credential. John has all of these things that he can rightfully and humbly say, look, I know what I'm talking about. I'm an authority. But how does John refer to himself? How does John refer to over and over again? We see this in John chapter 13. John says this about himself. He says he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. I used to think that was like a cocky statement, right? It was like a passive-aggressive way of kind of sticking it to the others. It was kind of his way of saying like, well, you know, mom always did like me best. It was kind of like that, right? It was almost like saying, well, you know, I'm the one who gets things done on time as opposed to everyone else. It was kind of John's kind of way of kind of needling those around him. But I, I think it's different than that. I, I really do. I think what's going on here is that, G, that John has, has changed his whole identity. That John could have hung on to the status symbols that he deserved and earned. The status symbol said that this guy's a leader, this guy's an authority, that this guy is someone who's writing what's going to become parts of the New Testament. But John doesn't cling to that. He clings to this idea, well, all I am my fullness is somebody who Jesus loves. Now, I think what's revealing about this, I think what's really going on here is that John is saying there is the thing. There is the thing. This is my core identity. That this status that he could have held on to, he threw it away and said, no, I'm going to be known fully and only as the one that Jesus loved. Not it's not an exclusive statement because he loves all, but this is what I'm going to be known as. 
See, John answers that question, how do you see yourself? And that's how he answers it. And so when I read this, I have to ask myself, how, how do I see myself? How do you see yourself? How do you see yourself in terms of your identity? What, is the, what forms this basic truth? You know, some of us work really long hours, and we wear it kind of as a badge of honor. We, we put people or priorities on the back burner so we can do the things that we think we have to do. We're obsessed with achievement. We see ourselves as the one who must succeed. Others of us bend over backwards, making others happy. Make sure everyone around us is taken care of. People we don't really know and people we know intimately. We are terrified of disappointing people. So we go the extra mile to be sure to please as many as we can. We see ourselves as the one who must please. Some of us spend our days chasing after the image we want. We get so focused on the exterior, whether it has to do with our weight or our clothes or, or what we do and kind of this sense of success or even the, the social media pictures that we, we sure share just because it doesn't show our double chin and gets us from the right angle, right? I never do that. But we end up being the one who must look good. Other of us can't rest until a certain person in our life is, is in our life and happy to be there. Our emotions ride the highs and lows of that person's affections. The highs are really high, but the lows are really low. We see ourselves as the one who must be wanted. Some of us pour ourselves out in good deeds. We are doers. We sign up, we volunteer, and the pastor or the PTA president or the HOA person says, I couldn't do this without you. We are the one who must serve. Or maybe we can identify with the shepherds in the story. We are used to being overlooked. We are used to being passed by. We see ourselves as the one who doesn't matter. There's so many places that we look for our identity. We search this out for our sense of worth at work, in our relationships, our, as parents, as, as kids, and in our accomplishments here at church, and in our bank statements. All of us look for that something or that someone who will make us feel okay about ourselves. I, I do this too. I, I check a lot of the boxes I just listed, but mainly, mainly when I think about how do I see myself, I wrap my identity up in being the one who matters. I wrap my identity up in being the one who matters. See, I have an inferiority complex. The last thing I would want any of you to think in this moment, Josh isn't really prepared. I don't think Josh knows what he's talking about. I don't know if he believes what he's saying. I don't think he's very smart. You can attack my looks, kind of car I drive. You can talk about clothes I wear and whether or not I wore this shirt last Sunday, which is possible. <laughs> you, you, seriously, you, you can go, it, it does not bother me. But if you say, you know what, Josh is just, it doesn't matter. I have no opinion about him. He, he is somebody that's just kind of there. He's bland. He's vanilla. He, there's nothing there. There's no passion. There's no heart. And there's nothing behind it. There's no intelligence. There's no, there's no faith. There's no belief. And whatever. I struggle with that idea. I have to be the one who matters. As a pastor, as a dad, as a husband, I want to leave a mark. And I judge myself on that. And of course, 
I can't control that stuff. I can't control what you think. I can't control how this plays out. I can't control what you hear, what you don't hear. I can't control the questions that come to mind. I recognize that. I know that, but still, I put myself captive to it. I put myself on that roller coaster, don't I? Why is it that if you put something on social media about how much you love Movement Church, that makes me feel better? Why, why is that? Is, is that how God's going to judge me at the end? Is there some, some like movie cinematic play out here where all of a sudden I'm at the end and God says, well, you had, you had 450 likes and, and, uh, and, and, and 10,000 downloads of your sermons, and, but only, only 40 people actually listened to them, so, so that goes against you. It's not... But why is it that I put myself on that standard? Why is it that I put myself in that place where I say, I have to matter? See, here's what I long for. Here's what I want for myself. Here's what I want for you. I want us to understand the lies that we fall into. I'm not telling you to stop. I'm not telling you just to quit doing it. I want us to understand the lies that we hear, that we believe. That whatever that thing is, that I have to matter, that that gives me value, that that's something I can get from it, and look at how powerful it is. I want us to understand that our identity has to be moving towards something else. That the truest thing about you, and this is true whether you believe it or not, this is true whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, this is true whether you are in or you're out, this is true. The truth is, you and I are of the one that Jesus loves. This is the core of your identity. This is the basis of your worth. You are the one Jesus loves. I am the one that Jesus loves. This is our true self. Everything else in terms of our identity is an illusion. Just think with me for a minute what this means. It means we can breathe. So we can take a second. It means that we can relax. We can realign and not chase after things that don't matter. Instead of being the one who must succeed, or the one who matters, or the one who must look good, or the one who must please, we can stop striving. We can actually rest in this one who has already loved us far more than we can ever dream. So you and I are the ones that Jesus loves. I think growing up as a follower of Jesus, I think growing up in this kind of church world, I think a lot about this is, is coming to live out this core identity. And it's something that's been pushed and told and taught me throughout my life. And maybe you can relate to that. You've heard this message before. You know what I'm talking about. You know these stories of Scripture. But so often, I think we kind of become callous to it, don't we? In Christian culture, we kind of say, yeah, well, yeah, Jesus loves you, but man, you better not do whatever. You better, not, you better not fall into this trap. You better not do this thing that we consider a sin that's greater than some other sin. You better not do this thing that's out there in the public. You may not, better not admit your weakness or your faults because you better protect your identity. And I think what Jesus is saying over and over again, I think what John uh, figures out is that our identity is this, as the one who Jesus loves. Don't believe the lies that you are what you do or have don't believe the lie that that if you're good enough if you check all the boxes god will love you more because the truth is you are already loved fully and completely and the scandal of the gospel the scandal of the message of jesus the absurdity the thing that doesn't make any sense and i'm not going to try to explain it because i don't understand it is that no matter what you do no matter what you do 
the love that Jesus has for you is complete. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you more, and there's nothing you can do that will get God to love you less. Period. This is absolute and total. Stop trying to earn this, and I'm telling myself that. See, when we fight these lies, we live into our true identity, I think things begin to change. What do the shepherds do? There when Jesus is, is announced, when Jesus kind of comes into the world and the shepherds hear the, the news first, they respond, they go and tell people what's going on. The woman at the well. The woman at the well has this incredible experience with Jesus. Jesus explains, this is who you really are and I love you. I know you better than you know yourself and I love you. And she begs Jesus, please, let me come with you. Let me just, I need, I need more information. I need to go deeper with you. I need to understand this. And Jesus says, no, you're supposed to stay. You're supposed to stay here and tell this story. And it's not like a Hollywood movie where at the end that Jesus goes back and he meets this woman and everything's so much better. But what does happen later in the story is that Jesus does go back to this area. He doesn't meet the woman, but people know about Jesus. They know about Jesus because this woman had acted. She had told the story. She went forward and said, I don't understand all this, but this guy told me everything about myself and still said I'm loved. I'm going to listen to him. There's something going on here. That ultimately, ultimately, we are loved. We are a people that we get to say we are in on this. We are loved fully, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus is doing. And on Palm Sunday, on Palm Sunday, when we look to all those things that, that tell us something, we look to all those things that say, you know what, we have achieved something. We look to all those things that say, this is how I think it's going to go. Jesus says, well, you're wrong, but I still love you. I still want to be a part of this. The band's going to come up if you guys are ready. The band's going to come up, and, and we're going we're gonna to sing a song. We're going to go into a time of communion.